nationality, gender, sexual orientation, race, and disability. There can be hazards for people who walk these roads in one or more minority categories in policing, healthcare, education, and more. This is a valid podcast. I'm Dara Thompson, and I'm joined with my sister, Elena Gibbs. Today, we'll talk with Professor Darren Whitfield. He teaches at the University of Pittsburgh and is part of the Center on Race and Social Problems. We'll share what intersectionality means to us. We'll also hear about how the Special Olympics is responding to the pandemic. Welcome to the show, everyone. We'll start with reporter Nick Tomarello. Hey, Nick. Hey, how are you? Good. Yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks, everyone. And we're lucky for uh, and happy for everyone to be here at season two of A Valid Podcast. And of course, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Darren Whitfield from Pitt University, and we're going to hop right in with the questions. So Darren, I'd like to start off by defining intersectionality. Could you explain where this term comes from? Thank you for having me, Nick, and that's a, that's a great place to start. So the term intersectionality was coined by um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a legal scholar um, in 1989. So um, actually this last year, we celebrated 35 years of intersectionality and she gave a wonderful talk to, to clear up misconceptions about it. But essentially intersectionality is this idea that each individual um, holds different identities and that we all walk through life as all of those inter identities intersecting and each of those identity carries a level of power privilege or marginalization and that through the blending of that we we sort of interact with the social environment but that that is not without sort of power dynamics so i think a, a central tenet of intersectionality that people often forget is that we live in a society with power differentials right at the individual um group and societal levels and those societal and institutional levels really influence how we experience our social environment because of things like racism or ableism or sexism. And so that it's a, it's a central component, but I think it's really important to think about how you show up in a room, those identities really together influence the experiences that you have and that's layered by things like um, structural inequalities that exist in the society. And you studied the relationship between social media and depression among lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. And your research is, is based on two points. This population is more socially active on social media than heterosexuals. And also the depression rate in this group is one and a half to two times that of heterosexual counterparts. Now, people at the intersections of minorities we're discussing today are among those who are targets of abuse. Does that play into this conversation in terms of how people in what we call intersections are impacted by, say, hate speech online? First, I want to, I want to say that I did that work with my colleague, Dr. Cesar um, Escobar, um, so I, I don't want to take credit for all of the work. I was part of a sure. team who, who did that research. But um, I think absolutely, right? So when we see, so there's a, a famous theory, it's called minority stress, um, which was done um, by Ian Myers and David 
Frost, but um, what they e explain is how individuals of different minority groups and of our minority status and experience stress above and beyond the, the daily stressors that individuals, perhaps a privileged background, might experience. And so when we think about things like the intersections of um, marginalized identities, right, then we would expect that those individuals would um, unfortunately experience more discrimination, right, or more victimization. So when we think about things like hate speech, it, it is not surprising that we would see things um, such as queer people of color or queer disabled individuals experiencing more hate speech because they belong to multiple minority categories and therefore are more impacted by that. So when we look at those things in that study, when we looked at um, mental health outcomes, it's not surprising, but that happens in, in all aspects of, unfortunately, of our, our society. When we look at things like healthcare, health access and health outcomes when we look at things like you know the murder rate amongst trans um, black women those things are not surprising when we think about it from the lens of intersectionality and and, and those interactions of who their identity really is and so um, yes i mean it's it, it we would expect those things and unfortunately we don't live in an equitable society and so when you layer on marginalized identities we will often, or you might expect that there um, would be additional um, violence, marginalization, victimization that would occur to individuals. And why is this research important to you? Um, that's a really interesting question. You know, I don't know that many people ever ask me why it's important. My research is important to me. Um, I, I would say that my that this is important to me because I, I identify as a marginalized individual, right? I am black and I'm also a gay male and I grew up in a poor community. Um, and so for me as someone who has now had an uh, identity shift in terms of my, my socioeconomic status, it's really important to me to be able to give back and to speak to and voice um, the experiences of different communities in which I am a member of to, to, to really undo what I would consider is um, centuries of whitewashing of um, the experience of people in this country. And you actually brought up the term intersectionality that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, you said 35 years ago, which is around the same time that the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed mm -hmm. into legislation. And still we know that the fight for civil rights continues. Can you share why intersectionality is a crucial component in the fight for civil rights? Yes, and, and, and let's be clear about the research that um, Dr. Crenshaw was doing. So that research was directly related to what she was seeing in the legal system in terms of Black women having equal access to legal representation that was equitable um, and seeing that there was disproportionate sentencing, that there was all this dis disproportionality occurring for Black women in the legal system. And so she was like, there's something here. So, you know, it's, it, I find it interesting that this was rooted in the legal system um, as a, 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 and policy and laws, right? And what that might mean for other groups. And so I think um, what you are talking about is really um, important because I think when we think about, you know, we're in this moment right now um, around anti-racism 
And I think what we can, and, and it's an important moment, but I want us to think really critically about what that means to be anti-racism when we think it through from an intersectional perspective, right? Because it's not just Black folks in general, right? Like Black people are not monolithic, like no group is a monolith. And so to, to, to really be true and speak true to like who makes up those groups and how might those groups have different experiences, right? My experience as someone who is a college professor is much different than the experience. And I tell this to my students all the time, right? My experience is very different than the experience of someone who is also black and maybe um, gay or bisexual, but also might be living with a disability or might be living in poverty, right? Or an array of identities where they are experiencing inequities, right? Or they belong to a marginalized group. And so I think as we think through this moment, but also lots of moments in history as we fight for equality in this country, it's really important that we think about the intersections. One of the things I find interesting in the movements that we've had over time is I don't think we've done enough critical reflection of who's in those groups. And so people get left behind, right? When we think about the women's movement, right? And, 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 and suffrage, right? There was lots of critiques about that because who was included and who wasn't? When we think about the civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s and, and ask ourselves who was potentially left behind. And I think, you know, speaking as a queer person, a queer person of color, I think about um, you know the, the 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 equal rights movements for gay and lesbian folks, and I often say like, who's not in this conversation? Like because we are not one community, we are a collection of folks who belong to a community, but that doesn't mean that everyone is going to benefit from what cause we're fighting for, right? When we looked at um, the passage of same-sex marriage, right, and, and equal marriage and marriage rights, you know, there were a lot of people who were very excited about that, but there were a lot of people in the community who that was not the first thing on their mind because they belonged to other marginalized groups. And so marriage was not the battle they needed to be won. They needed another battle to be won, right? They needed um, better access and accessibility for folks living with disabilities, right? Or they needed better um, protections for racial and ethnic minorities, right? They needed other things. And those were the battles that we still have not won. And so marriage equality doesn't necessarily ring to those groups. And how can we be more mindful of intersectionality in our daily lives? I think the first thing is recognizing that if we truly look at who we are as individuals, no one person experiences all marginalization and no one person experiences all privilege. Right, and if we really are clear about intersectionality, I think that's one of the things that we have to be clear about is because we're an intersection of identities. And so I think to be mindful is to, 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 to really examine our own identities and say, where do I have privilege as an individual? And where am I experiencing marginalization? And to, and to ring true about that and think about the ways in which we experience privilege that we are uplifting those folks who we have privilege over, right? And, and to be, and to be and to to be an ally in that right, just like we would want other people to be allies for us and our marginalized identities, right? This isn't the oppression Olympics, as I tell my students, right? We all have a little bit of both, and so all of us have work to do. We all can contribute to 
um, equality from some front because we all experience privilege in one way or another. And so it's up to us to, to be critical about our identities because it's so easy to be bogged down, trapped in um, your marginal identity, identity and how you are oppressed that it becomes really hard for you and for all of us, myself included, right? I, I have to check myself too, right? Around like, how am I experiencing privilege and what am I doing to, to, to take away from that privilege that I experience and to, and to provide an opportunity for people who don't experience or enjoy that same luxury to, to have a voice and to be heard and to be listened to. Thank you so much. And I'm going to turn it back over to you, Elena and Dara, to follow up with any questions or comments that you have for Darren. First, Professor, I would just like to say thank you for being here today. You're, that was powerful. <laughs> it was very powerful moving. And I, I just really appreciate the research that you're doing. Um, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast today um, and sharing your thoughts with us. It was, it was very powerful. Thank you. Yes, definitely much appreciated. If you wouldn't mind sharing, as you mentioned about people fighting their battles, um, could you, would you mind sharing maybe some of your experience and what battle you fought or what people can fight for you? Yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to talk about um, sort of the work that I need to do because I think part of speaking to and to provide education is also to model that behavior. So I'll talk about, right? So for instance, when I was asked to be on this show, it was very clear that like, I'm not a person living with a disability. And so my first response was, is that okay, right? Because I wanna make sure that I'm always providing an opportunity for someone who doesn't always get that stage, right? Or get that platform. And so I am always conscious about like, if I am taking up space, who am I taking up space from, right? And so is there someone better served? So, you know, I, I frequently will get requests to like come and speak or talk about something. I always, before I agree, I think to myself, if I say yes, whose voice isn't being heard? And, and, and who do I know? And if I don't know someone that I can put people in contact with, that, that, that tells me a place where I need to do some work, right? So if I can't point to a queer person who's living with disabilities because of, you know, the theme of this podcast, then what do I need to do, right? What work do I still need to engage in? One of the things that I tell my students and I try and practice is to look at your circle of friends, right? Um, because we live in bubbles, <laughs> you know, we, 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 can, we can try and sugarcoat it, but we all live in bubbles. We, we hang out with people who of our like mind, right? Birds of a feather flock together. And so what does your circle look like and how do you expand that circle of, of connections to include people who you may not share perspective with because they may not be of the same privilege as yourself? And how do you, how do you have meaningful connections? I can't remember the scholar where I heard this from. The scholar had said that civil rights are won through relationships. Oh, I know who it is now. It's Dean Spade. So Dean Spade out of the University of um, Seattle. So Dean Spade had said, you know, we can legislate as much as we want, but legislation has never changed to, to changes in attitudes. And the change in attitudes is what is actually needed to then change the culture of a society, right? People 
in this moment of Black Lives Matters is like, I'm surprised. I thought we settled racism, right? Lots of people think mm -hmm. that. Lots of people mm -hmm. think that the civil rights movement settled it, but it didn't because it was legislation. It wasn't a change in the country's attitudes around Black people and their place in the society, right? We, we find these battles all the time. Obviously, the suffrage movement did not, and, and, and the waves of feminist, feminist theory did not change the standing of women in our society. And it is because we legislated our way to rights versus changing the attitudes of a society. And that that only happens when people feel like they have a connection. If I feel like I am invested in someone's life where there is discrimination occurring, I am more likely to engage in actions to undo that discrimination, right? Harvey Milk said, come out, come out wherever you are, the LGBTQ folks. And the reason he said that was because he knew that the only way we're gonna change our society is that everyone knew that there was a person in their life who discrimination against LGBTQ folks was personal. And that would change that person's ideas around discrimination, right? If everyone knew and had personal connections with people across different marginalized groups, it would change, it would change attitudes. And it is a change in attitudes which will change the cultural understanding in our society and change our cultural perspective. Legislation will never be effective at actually changing the minds and hearts, which is what actually changes a society, not laws. I can't point to one law that has actually changed the lives of marginalized people in this country in a really powerful way because they were legislated, they were fought, and all laws can be undone. Well, you're seeing it now, right? Right, and that's the movement right there. Yeah. Change the hearts, change the attitudes, make a better world for everybody. Yeah, look at your social circle, expand it. That's a, that's a wonderful take home. Right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here again. Yeah, this was, it was a pleasure, absolute pleasure. It definitely was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Alyssa Grisham, a lead analyst here on a valid podcast following our last segment with Darren Whitfield. What are your takeaways from what you heard? Oh, there's so much to unpack from everything he said. And my biggest takeaway was the idea of if I don't know someone who represents a particular group or a particular aspect of society, it's on me, it behooves me to change that and to meet people and include them in my social circle and expand that bubble. So I, the way he put it was so important and so necessary and I think a great, great takeaway. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Sister. Yes, ma'am. What was the time you recalled that an understanding of intersectionality has been important? Um, well, I think um, for me, you know, having MS and having people say, oh, well, black people don't have MS or, you know, this doesn't happen to this for that group. But I feel like for us personally, we're always the ones out there fighting for the underdogs, trying to, you know, make sure everybody wins. So I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's quite a thing for us. 
<laughs> yeah, I would have to, I would have to agree how many people, um, mental health for African Americans, you know, uh, if research says that it's harder for us to get treatment. And then when we do get treatment, sometimes uh, we don't get the latest treatment. So yeah, being black with a mental illness, those are, those are the voices that we need to lift up. And it's definitely makes me want to think like, oh, who's not in my friends group? <laughs> who's not in our circle? Right. And who do we need to bring into our circle? Right. You know, who, you know, squad goals, right? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I feel like everybody, it's just very interesting. I feel like everybody can be lifted up at one time or another. So definitely. If you can't find somebody to lift up, you're doing it wrong. Definitely need to, to expand our squad and you know, learn from them and help them. Because if we all are lifted up, it makes a better world. Yeah, win. Mm -hmm. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> lift it up, lift it up. All right, next up, Nick Tamarello is back with the host of our sister podcast, Look Who's Here. Who's here, Nick? Hey, thanks, Selena. Hi, Erin, how are you doing? Good. Good. Thank you for joining us live here on A Valid Podcast. We're definitely looking forward to your interviews. And so, Erin, we know that, of course, sports are limited during the pandemic. And in Got that right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and in upcoming podcasts, you interview local directors of the Special Olympics and also Miracle League. So, Erin, I wanted to ask you, what do you miss most about Miracle League? One, I'm not swimming because I also do that for Special Olympics, and I uh, also miss golf. Yeah, I remember you talked you swimming and you said golf for Special Olympics. And I know that uh, Miracle League, I know you play, you play baseball, but I you won't get baseball. to for a while. I know, but you won't get to for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think, what are you going to miss most about playing baseball? Missing um, the fans and um, also playing with the players. Yeah, definitely. And I know with Special Olympics, um, you actually took part in the summer games for Special Olympics PA. What were some of the activities that you got to do with that? We did a virtual summer games here at the house. Right at your house. Yeah. And do you, what kind of games did you play? Did you do any events? Actually, um, I also did running. Running. Yes. <laughs> Running's fun. Um, I remember from the conversation that you had with the sports director for Special Olympics Allegheny that they are actually looking to do a virtual Special Olympics just like the summer games. They sort of want to copy it in yeah. a way and, and do events that, like that. So that should, that should be um, really cool, Erin. Well, th thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to your podcast coming out on Sunday, your interview with Special Olympics Allegheny. Thanks, Erin. No problem. Oh, thank you. I'm in. <laughs> thank you. And of course, I would also like to highlight Unabridged Press's partnership with Public Source for the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act at adapittsburgh.com. And there you can hear the voices of people with disabilities through reported articles, first person essays, podcasts, and video. And if you want to learn more about Elena and Dara, our two new 
voices to a valid podcast, you can listen to episode five of ADA at 30. Thanks, Nick. And thank you to Dr. Darren Whitfield of the Center of Race and Social Problems at the University of Pittsburgh uh, for joining us, as well as our lead analyst, Elisa Grisham, and founding host of Look Who's Here, Aaron Gannon. I'm Olivia Gibbs, and with my sister, Dara Thompson, this is a valid podcast. We just want to say, please be gentle with yourself, be kind, include people, mean people stink. A Valid Podcast is produced by Unabridge Press and created with support from the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify every Friday morning. We hope you'll listen and leave us feedback and a rating. Um, For more information, go to avalidpodcast.com.